keeping in mind all that we're doing today in worship, including ordination and installation of officers, but also the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. I've chosen uh, part of the so-called Christ hymn in Philippians 2. We'll just, I'll just read the first uh, few verses of it, and I'll read this text for us, but I hope you'll follow along in your Bible, Philippians 2. I'll be reading verses 5 through 8. And this is where Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. During the two and a half years I spent at Erskine Theological Seminary working on my Master of Divinity degree, I had a roommate uh, that entire time and and when I graduated, he graduated the same day, and my wife Sarah also graduated the same day from the college. In fact, it was the same ceremony, in fact. And uh, after Sarah and I were married, we moved to Rock Hill to be your first associate, and he moved to Greenville to take the call of a church there. So we were able to keep in touch uh, with one another since we weren't more than an hour and a half apart. And after I'd been here a couple of years as your associate, you were nice enough to send me and Sarah to a youth specialties conference in Atlanta. And seeing that that conference was going to begin in the middle of the day, I called up Walter. That was his name, my roommate's name. I called up Walter and said, Walter, are you going to be home on such and such a day? And he said that he was. And I said, well, good. Sarah and I are going to come spend the night with you. I mean, what could he say after I invited us? And usually when preachers who are friends get together, they begin to tell some stories about things that are going on in ministry, and and Walter began to tell us what happened to him one night. It seems that in his own spiritual life, he felt like he really wasn't the kind of leader and pastor he needed to be for his church and so one evening after 10 in the evening he began to pray the specific prayer God make me more like Jesus and no more had the words left his mouth than the phone rang and he picked up the phone and he said hello and a lady's voice was on the other end and she said I found your name in the phone book And I'm on such and such a corner, and I need your help. And Walter took down the information, told her he'd try and find her. And he hung up the phone, and he thought to himself, he wouldn't even let me say amen. (laughs) That's the fastest I've ever had prayer answered. To make a long story short, this woman and her young children were on their way to Atlanta and were driving an old pickup truck. And remember, now, this was in the early 80s, and it was an older truck than that, and it had a generator instead of an alternator, which means that it was, it was making enough current 
to keep the motor running, but not enough to keep the lights bright enough to see. And so they needed a place to stay for the night. And Walter said, well, I'll put you and your family up here at the house, and I'll feed you breakfast in the morning, but I don't have any money to give to you. And they were fine with that. They spent the night, got up the next day, and were able to get back on the road in the daylight. And Walter said that after he left, he couldn't help but think how many times we don't really understand the ramifications of some of the prayers that we make as Christian people, because if you really think about it, that prayer, make me more like Jesus, is a dangerous prayer. In the sense that it calls us out of our own nature and into an attitude that is totally foreign to us. Because it calls us to an attitude of giving instead of receiving. And it calls us into an attitude of sacrifice instead of a life of ease. And it calls us to a life of service. And this is exactly how Paul describes Jesus in this text before us this morning. But before we talk about Paul's description, let's make sure we're aware of why he gives us these words. Many people call this the Christ hymn, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. We only read the first half. It's a great Christological treatise. It's where we find out more about Jesus in one compact place than I believe anywhere else in the New Testament. And yet that's not why Paul gives us these words. It's not that he's trying to give us great Christology here in this passage, even though that's what he does. And the reason is, as we look at it in context, if you have your Bible, just think about the two verses right before our text, where Paul writes, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others better Then yourselves, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then Paul says, Have this mind or attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, it's an illustration. Paul begins to give us in verses 5 through 11 an illustration of the kind of attitude that every child of God should have as they live life in this world. As Ralph Martin puts it in his commentary, Paul uses the verb phronane, which more than any other in the epistle, focuses attention on what he expects his readers to do. The verb is both a summons to adopt an attitude and an exhortation uh, to carry out that attitude into practice. And the fact that he uses the phrase, among yourselves, have this mind or attitude among yourselves, reminds us that Paul is, after all, writing to a congregation, to the church at Philippi. And so it's not so much 
that he's giving us teaching here as individual Christians. We can take it that way, but we have to remember he's talking to the church at large. And what is this attitude that we find in Jesus? Paul proceeds to tell us, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Another way to think about this is that Jesus did not consider the fact that he was God something to be exploited or something to be taken advantage of. You know, so often those people with power, they take advantage of that power, but Jesus didn't have that attitude at all. Rather, he willingly and joyfully emptied himself of all of the privileges of deity. And again, Paul tells us how. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This is just a further means by which Paul expresses this attitude that we find in Jesus. He did not exploit his status as God, but rather manifested his deity in service, in humility through service. By both becoming a slave and limiting himself by taking on the form of flesh. And Paul can make this claim because Jesus himself understood what his life was to be. He knew why he was there. He knew how he should live. He tells us in Mark 10 and Matthew 20 that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you know, Jesus didn't just talk about being a servant. He lived like a servant. As we read through the Gospels, we can see over and over again how he allowed his schedule, his plans to be changed by those who were in need. We can read stories like we find in John 13 where Jesus washes his own disciples' feet. You remember that story? You know, that's the day the disciples had been arguing among themselves which of them Uh, was the greatest. And so as they get in that upper room where Jesus is about to initiate this very sacrament, they're all sitting around. They hadn't had their feet washed because there's no slave in that upper room. Jesus wanted it just the twelve and himself. And so Jesus takes off his own clothes, his own garments, the marks of status and dignity, and we're told there in the text, girds himself with a towel, which is the mark of a slave, and he begins to wash his disciples' dirty feet. One of the most menial forms of service known in that day and time, and I would say still today. And at the end of his work, he tells his disciples, I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. You see, as the head of the church, Jesus saw that there could never be a true Christian community 
without this sacrificial attitude of service for the the challenges of living together as the church would be too great without it. You know, we're too selfish. And so there has to be an attitude of service. There has to be a mark of service. To be Christ-like is to, to serve. It's to stoop. It's to give. For among all that's uncertain today about what your duty is and what mine is as far as international affairs, as far as economics or education or the political realm or missions or stewardship or whatever you want to name, about one thing, there can never be any question. The Christian who refuses to undertake the unpleasant and degrading task in any area of life is denying his or her calling as a servant of the Lord Jesus. Whether at home in the marital relationship or at work, whether we're in school or we're out in the world, and especially here at church, if we refuse To serve, we're denying the very type of life that Jesus lived. Now, you witnessed officers being ordained and installed today. And these are people who are willing to serve. Because when they're called by the committee... The sessional committee, they're asked a lot of different questions, but that's one question in particular they are always asked. Are you willing to serve? It's a practice, you see, that goes all the way back to the New Testament church, at least, because we can read about it in the book of Acts, chapter 6, when that New, New Testament church was growing by leaps and bounds and the apostles couldn't keep up with everything, and we see officers elected. And the Greek word used there is diakonia, the term from which we get our word deacon. And it simply means to serve. The primary task of those first officers was not to vote or delegate, not to propose motions or or conduct business. Their primary task was to serve, to do whatever needed to be done in the life of the church. And the point is, that's ours as Christian people. All of us. We should all be servants before we're anything else. In fact, the servant's heart is what leads us to be teachers and and youth group leaders and nursery volunteers and, and all the rest. All the volunteer positions that have to go on in the life of a church for ministry to take place. As Stuart Briscoe puts it, so many people talk about what a great person Jesus was. But for some strange reason, we all deny the very principles that made him great. He who would be greatest among you, Jesus said, let him be servant of all. 
We don't like to serve. But Jesus says that's what makes us great in the economy of his kingdom. I'm not saying it's easy, but in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis tells us how we can sort of begin to accomplish this. In his book 4, chapter 7, it's entitled, Let's Pretend, and he says that if we want to be like Jesus, we need to pretend to be Jesus, much like a child would pretend to be a soldier or a shopkeeper. Just as the child's imaginary games help him or her to develop skills that they'll use later in life, so does pretending to be Jesus help you and me to become the kind of servant we're to become. Lewis argues that the minute we realize we're dressing up as Jesus Christ, we'll discover ways in which our pretense could become reality. He says we'll, embarrass, we'll be embarrassed to discover thoughts that we know Jesus would never have had. And we'll be embarrassed to see unfulfilled duties that Jesus would not have neglected. He says those realizations should in turn prompt us to more complete obedience. Now, obedience is a word that's fallen on hard times in the 21st century. Who talks about obedience? That's not a fun word or concept to talk about, and yet that's how Paul describes Jesus here at the end of our text. He reminds us of the cross of Calvary and how Jesus became obedient unto death even death on a cross. Surely, that's the ultimate example of service. Obedience so complete that death comes if it be God's will. Such was the case with William Borden's life. Do you know the story of William Borden? Heir to the Borden fortune. The whole world was at his feet when he graduated from Yale in 1909 heir to that tremendous board and fortune, all kinds of money and wealth and prestige, and yet the grace of God had changed him in a wonderful way, and he felt the call of God on his life to go into mission service. And finally, he decided that Muslim people in the north of China was the group to where he should go an untouched people group in that day and time. And so following his graduation from Yale, he went to Princeton Seminary, he prepared for the ministry, and then he traveled to Egypt in order to learn Arabic, which would help him in dealing with these Chinese Muslims. And while in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and was dead within a month. And his death shocked the world because the whole world had been following the story of this wealthy young man who had so much promise and opportunity and how he was just giving all of that away to go proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to some long-lost people in China. And they were shocked at his death. 
But if you had been able to talk to William Borden, he wouldn't have been shocked. Because these are the words he wrote in his journal. In every man's heart, there is a throne and there's a cross. And if Christ is on the throne, self is on the cross. If Christ is on the throne, self is on the cross. And you see, that's true because that's what happened with Jesus himself. God the Father was on the throne of his life. That's why he prayed that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. And so he took the form of a servant and he humbled himself and he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And that sacrificial death is what is portrayed so well for us by this sacrament in which we'll participate in a few moments. It too is a a moving drama of the, the way in which Jesus lived and gave his life For the sins of the world, which means he lived and gave his life for your sins and for my sins. That's the good news of the gospel. And just like Jesus, you and I have been called to live and give our lives for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. As Jesus put it, I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. May God teach us what it means to take the form of a servant each and every day to his honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.